Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today we have Liam. And what I've learned about Liam is like this guy is 100% about being remote. So without saying anything more, I'm going to deem him the remote boss because that's who he is. That's who he, who he embodies. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So why don't you give our audience a little bit more insight about who you are, Liam? Sure. First off, thanks a lot for having me on. Really appreciate it. My name is Leah Martin. I am on planet Earth. More specifically, I'm in Montreal, Canada right now. I'm actually working from my closet uh, right down behind me. That's my shower because I've worked remotely from one place to another for almost 20 years uh, from various weird spots. We could probably get into that inside of this podcast. And I love remote work. It is um, the clear focus of everything that I've done over the last couple of decades. Our mission as a company is we want to empower people transition towards remote work. We have team members in 43 different countries all over the world, and uh, we've never had an office and we never will have an office. So, I mean, I guess that's the dream of every entrepreneur, every employee is to essentially work remotely, but not everyone gets to that level. So let's talk about like, how did you even wake up on a random day and say, you know what, I'm going to not only work remotely, but I'm going to create a business that influences and help other people work remotely as well. It actually came out of a really problematic part of my life, which I think a lot of big growth moments end up coming out of disasters. I was running a business which was providing online tutoring to uh, university students back in 2007, 2008. And I ended up doing pretty well at that business, but I ended up chipping my tooth one day. And I went into the doctor's office and, you know, you got the big light, you sit back at the chair and they, 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 they draw the light on you. And uh, I remember the dentist gasped. And it's never a good idea when a health professional gasps when they look at you. And he said, Liam, which, which tooth are you talking about? You've cracked almost all of your teeth. Wow. And I said, well, you know, it's this one in the back. And he actually sat me down and he said, like, what's going on here? He thought that I had pancreatic cancer because the year before I had a perfect set of teeth and it wasn't <clears throat> pancreatic cancer. It was actually from stress. It was from me subconsciously grinding my teeth every single day, um, trying to make that business work. And so my therapist and my dentist told me that I needed to figure out something else to do in my life uh, or, or basically get rid of this business. And I realized that remote work was the opportunity that I had to be able to have a degree of autonomy and freedom inside of my work like no other person can inside of an office environment, but then also provide that same capability to all the people that worked for me. And it's worked really well almost 20 years later. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's a hell of an origin story to kind of mean the fact that you almost lost all your teeth because of it, right? So with that, right, how would you define yourself, being that you're so passionate about what we're talking about right now, if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? Boy, remote work advocacy. That's probably the biggest thing. I'm what I would call a fundamentalist remote worker. Uh, I could talk to you for half an hour about all the stats showing you that remote work is actually the best thing that you can do inside of your business to not only make your business more successful, but also reduce the level of stress that you have inside of your business. But I don't really want to talk about that. I just want to talk about being able to make sure that everyone has access to these types of work opportunities. Because I mean, for me anyways, it has been the single most important thing that's improved my life. And if I speak to all of the uh, people that work for me, I think they have the same context as well. So, I mean, I think that, that, that's a great, great segue, right? So, I mean, you're talking about the employees that work for you and they have the same mentality that, that you have. And most employers don't usually want their employees to have that mentality. So what kind of hurdles or negative pushback have you received in that area of expertise, being that your employer is helping your employees understand how to do things remotely? Yeah, I think onboarding is a really important part of this. I mean, obviously, a lot of that has changed since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. 
in February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. By March of 2020, it was 45% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. That's the biggest transition in work since the Industrial Revolution, but the Industrial Revolution took 80 years to do, and we did that in March. Wow. So it's a complete transformation of how work is currently being done. And you're really seeing now Pandora's box has been opened. As a lot of people are being asked back to go back to the office, you're actually losing um, not all of your people, but you're losing the 20% of people that I would consider A players, the people that actually have at any point three other jobs that they can go and get. And they're saying to themselves, listen, Remote work is not a nice to have, it's a table stakes issue. So if you want me to actually work inside of your company, you at least need to allow me to be able to work hybrid. Um, but in terms of just direct onboarding, I think at this point, it's really one of those things where we have not encountered probably in the last year, anyone that's at least come through our funnel for HR that doesn't have at least some experience in remote work. Um, another really interesting statistic to pop up, which I love touting on podcasts, is what percentage do you think of employees that get paid more than $100,000 a year are uh, working remotely? What percentage of employees do you think work remotely that make over 100 grand a year? You're talking about percentage out of the entire workforce? Or are you talking about like the, the United now? States? United the United States. States workforce. Yeah. Wow. All workers over 100 grand. All the workers over 100 grand, which kind of puts them more into director roles. I would say maybe, and again, I'm just shooting in the dark, maybe 5%? 75%. Wow. Wow. 75% of people that make over 100 grand work remotely. So there's also a big barrier between rich and poor. Hmm. Um, if the higher your salary goes, the higher your chance of working remotely. So if you want to go after those high-end jobs... You got to learn how to figure out how to work remotely. If you haven't figured that out, you're unfortunately going to get left behind. Okay. So, I mean, with those stats, I mean, you're talking about 75% of the workforce on the higher echelon are pretty much working remotely. How does that work essentially for like the corporations that you see, like the president or the VP that are always there? They wake up five o'clock in the morning, they're walking in the office, potentially more so like legal services. Like, how do you explain for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk to attorneys, obviously, they've there's some of those things that they got to do face to face, but the vast majority of their work can actually be done remotely as well. Um, when you talk to the people that are asking people back to the office, and I've gone gone very deep with some of these people saying, you know, why do you want your people go to, to go back to the office? Oh, well, you know, it's a productivity issue. Yeah, but you just told me that they were more productive when they were working from home. Oh, well, it's a culture issue. Well, how's your, your employee net promoter score? It was higher, wasn't it, the last couple quarters due to, the co due to working remotely? Yeah, but, you know, and at the end of the day, it really boils down, unfortunately, to the reason they're not giving, which is ego. And that's one of the big things that a lot of remote companies do not have. Um, we focus on work, not necessarily the ego around work. So when you go into an office and you're the boss of that office, and you get to boss a whole bunch of other people around, it gives you an ego boost. It gives you that power. And that's something that is unfortunately very detrimental towards the success of your business. It's actually really advantageous towards your own personal ego, but it doesn't actually serve the company in the right way. Wow. So, I mean, so you're talking about like ego and, and I, I like this topic. Let's just dive down this, this, unpack this a little bit more. Right. So you have ego, but in, on the other side of the coin, would you not say that some of them are more like old fashioned and they're used to that, that mentality of having a workforce and being in that environment. And that's what they've grown up knowing versus being accustomed to the new world. Yeah. Well, and, and that's another part of this that I think is really important to be able to reinforce when that switch happened from February to March, hmm. I was getting so many phone calls from massive companies. Uh, I had a G20 country call me and they said, hey, we have 550,000 employees and we need to take them remote tomorrow. How do we do it? And I said, I don't know. I have 150 people in my company. And they said, well, you're the first guy that's picked up the phone. Um, it was a complete lack of understanding. And the vast majority of those people that I lovingly call pandemic panickers they kind of did remote at gunpoint. It was emergency remote work. It wasn't actually the premeditated stuff that we've been doing for decades. And a big core piece of that 
is actually recognizing how to manage remote workers. Mm. And managing remote workers is very, very different from managing people in person. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that that's actually connected to the book that I spent the last year and a half writing with Harper Collins about the subject. Um, really kind of identifying how to manage these people and how they act very differently from people that are, you know, in person. So, I mean, I think this is this is a, definitely a fascinating topic, and I mean, we're, we're going to explode your, your your story a little bit deeper, right? So, with all these different things that you're doing, you're talking about remote. Not only are you applying a service, but you created like a software platform as well. So, let's talk about like how did you go from having a service and then creating a pretty world-renowned software for time tracking? So that actually came about as well due to my tutoring business. One of the big problems that I had was I couldn't actually equate for the amount of hours a student worked for a tutor. So I bill a student for 10 hours, the student wouldn't come back to me and say, hey, I only work with the tutor for five. I'd go to the tutor and say, did you work with this guy for 10 hours? And he said, yeah, I billed you for 10 hours. I'd end up having to refund the student for five hours and pay the tutor the full 10 hours of which I actually ended up losing money in the deal. And so this was creating a real problem inside of my business and my now business partner, Rob Rawson, that I've been working with for about 11 years, he had a really kind of like ratchety, crappy alpha of uh, this application that we now call Time Doctor. And he is a medical doctor, so that's why we called it Time Doctor. And we ended up launching that because it perfectly solved the core itch that I had, which was this aspect of basically lack of measurement and instrumentation inside of the business was completely destroying the business and totally destroying the profit margins. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, I mean, essentially you, you created a solution for a solution that you already had a solution for, and then you have this whole package, right? Yeah. So I think that any entrepreneur, I mean, if you're going to be incredibly passionate about something, number one, you have to be incredibly passionate about whatever you try to solve. But more importantly, I think if you want to delve into that a little bit deeper, it has to be a problem that you've personally experienced. You have to it, you have to scratch your own itch because there's going to be a time, whether it's next year, three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, where you're not going to want to do this because it's really hard. And it's that passion and excitement that you had for solving that initial problem that will get you through those tough periods. So for me, I just knew that that was such a perfect solution to one of the biggest problems inside of my business. And I knew there were a ton of other remote companies, even at that point, 10 years ago, that needed the same problem solved inside of their businesses. And that's what I suggest to anybody to do. Just go after that itch, figure it out. Even if it's not a big niche, at least it's something that you could say, you know what, this now exists in the world. This is an answer to that problem. And at least I solved that. Wow. Wow. So let's talk about this partnership for a minute. I mean, I've interviewed a couple of different partners on this, this podcast. And what I always realize about partnerships that are successful partnerships is that they're polar opposites. One person is highly analytical. The other person is creative or the other person is very rigid and the other person is more lenient. So considering like I'm interviewing you right now and I kind of say you're a ball of energy, you have this enthusiasm, you're very passionate. What is your partner like and how does that work with, with your current chemistry in your business? So you're absolutely right. Uh, there's a great book that you should read called, or anyone that's listening right now, called Rocket Fuel, which really explains this at depth. And generally, it goes down to this concept of visionary versus integrator. And so your visionary is kind of like your Steve Jobs, right? The guy that's thinking up these crazy ideas. He's the front man of the business. He wants to be able to talk to people. But does he actually have very good management skills? Not really. Uh, does he have good project management skills? Not really. But he can think about where the puck is going to be. I'm Canadian, so I always think about where the puck's going to be. My business partner is really good at thinking up how to be able to build and scale these businesses. So he's really good at figuring out the operations of the business, how the departments interact with each other, the financial aspects of the business. And it doesn't matter, you know, I actually don't really like the terminology of like CEO, COO, CMO, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know if you'd seen recently that Elon Musk called himself techno king for the SEC filings for, uh, for Tesla. I think all of these kind of terminologies are ridiculous. I think people should just really just describe what they do inside of the business. Mm -hmm. And I'm the face of the company. Think about where the puck is going to be. 
That's my job. And then my business partner is running all of the operations of the business and making sure that all of the executives inside of the company are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Wow. Wow. Of which I am one, obviously. <laughs> uh, I do have some interesting conversations with my business partner, but inside of that, there there are usually inside of those relationships, you wouldn't necessarily be friends with that person. And I think a lot of people have to recognize that to actually build a really fantastic business relationship, you don't necessarily have to be like best friends. Uh, even though Rob is a very good friend of mine, we are just very different people and accepting that my weaknesses are his strengths and his strengths are my weaknesses are the way that we've built this partnership long-term. And more importantly, actually recognizing that we don't get into each other's lane is a really important one as well. So I have a domain that I sit in. He has a domain that he sits in and we don't, um, we don't push each other's buttons or we don't get into each other's business because that fundamentally just slows us down. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously you're a remote specialist. You have like the Time Doctor app. So with your current partnership right now, like obviously there's systems behind the scenes. You wouldn't be where you are right now if there were not systems to kind of keep the balance going. So what systems do you guys currently have to kind of maintain your business? So I, uh, I wrote a book about a year and a half ago that's just about to come out about this exact concept. We build our entire architecture on what I'm calling asynchronous management, which is basically the ability to be able to build a business without directly interacting with people synchronously. So no video calls, no in-person meetings, even though we do have those, they're not necessarily dependent upon the business operations of the organization. So we have processes and systems and standard operating procedures inside of the organization. We also have the automation of reporting. Yeah. So every single employee inside of the company has a quantitative longitudinal metric that they need to be able to hit at least one. Um, maybe they have two or three, but usually it's at least one. And I can see that information. And so can my business partner. And actually, so can everyone else inside of the company. Another big thing that we do is we give everyone inside of the organization the same informational advantage, or at least we try to, as the CEO of the company. So everyone inside of the company can get access to the PL, can get access to everyone else's metrics, all of our process documents. And effectively, what this produces is a employee inside of the company does not own a position, they currently inhabit that position. And it's a little bit of a switch that you need to think about. So I'm not currently the CMO of the company, I currently inhabit the position of CMO of the company. And at any point, I can delegate that responsibility to other people. Like if I need to write a book for a year and a half and kind of just not do anything else, because I think that that's actually a much more difficult problem to solve than um, my current, you know, problems that I'm solving as the CMO of the company. Well, I mean, it's definitely a fascinating viewpoint. So it kind of lets me think about like you as a kid, right? Like if we're going back in time and seeing you as a child, were you like the kid in the playground organizing the noise, telling all the other kids what to do and how to do it and coming up with these grandiose ideas? Like what kind of kid were you? Boy, I was probably, I was kind of coming up with my own ideas. Um, I don't really care what the other kids did. <laughs> I mean, they could come and hang out with me if they wanted to, but I'm going in this direction. This is what I think we should be doing. And uh, I kind of just set my own sail. I mean, perfect other example, if you really want to figure out if you're an entrepreneur or not, maybe you're listening right now and you're not necessarily too sure. Um, I have not, I have been fired or quit almost every job I've had within 90 days. Um, it's very, very difficult for me to be able to work under someone else's system. Mm. And I realized at a young age, I either need to make my own system or get enslaved by someone else's. And I can't do the latter, unfortunately, even though long-term, statistically, if you put a hundred entrepreneurs, if you tried put a hundred people into entrepreneurship, the failure rate is going to be much higher. It's a much better idea to work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. I got to work for myself. That's the only way that I can really kind of keep, uh, keep food in my mouth, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's a positive thing. At least, you know, it. and some people, they don't know it and they're still struggling trying to figure out and kind of figuring out why they're losing jobs and not understanding that, you know, they should step out on their own and create their own self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the, the crux of it right there is, do you know yourself? Mm -hmm. 
And you got to ask yourself some difficult questions. Uh, and I think that everyone needs to sit down and ask themselves these questions because, I mean, entrepreneurship is really kind of sexy now, right? Like I even think since um, the Mark Zuckerberg movie about uh, the social network came out, a lot of people started thinking like tech was really sexy. And we see people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos that are just doing these fantastic things. At the end of the day, there's only a certain percentage of the population that's really built for that, good or bad. And you just have to recognize who you are. And if you're not that, you're going to go through a lot less pain um, and frustrations if you realize, yeah, you know what? I'm a really good um, operations manager or I'm a really good marketer, but I can't actually run a business to save my life. Or even more importantly, maybe you are this visionary person um, back to rocket fuel, but you don't actually have the integrator, the person to keep the trains running on time to really kind of keep you caged in and control you so that you can be directed in the right direction. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I mean, the movie I would use is probably the founder. Uh, anybody's familiar with the McDonald's story is kind of like most people could kind of feel that, you know, like you could be 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and you're still trying to figure it out. And then it takes one little minute conversation with the right person who becomes a partner and says, hey, you're not in that type of business. You're actually in this business. And then everything goes off from there. Everything shoots to the moon at that point in time. So I think you're definitely depicting that very, very, very clearly. Um, would you agree mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, I think so. As an example, COVID for us mm -hmm. was that inflection point. Um, remote work was kind of a fun little thing that you know people did. As I said, it was four percent of the U.S. workforce, but then it jumps to forty-five percent of the U.S. workforce overnight. And all of a sudden, remote work came turned into a from a nice to have to a need to have very very quickly. And when you have those inflection points inside of your business. <clears throat> You know, March, April, May, June was one of those, uh, I don't know if you see on those game shows, they've got those like tubes with like hurricane winds and they put $20 bills mm -hmm. in the top. And I'm just the guy trying to like grab $20 bills and stuff them down my bra. Well, that was me uh, for the first six months of COVID and realizing whoever can take immediate action and imperfect action, but immediate action as quickly as humanly possible ends up winning that game. Mm -hmm. that's the piece that entrepreneurship is really built for. And if you're not that type of person, then you just need to be able to recognize right off the top of the bat, hey, you know what? I'm not that type of person. I'm someone who could either support that person or I'm someone who could keep tabs on that person. I could harness that person to be able to make sure that they're moving in the right direction, right? Like, I mean, I think if you left Steve Jobs up to his own devices, he probably would have built spaceships. Even look at, you know, Elon Musk right now, probably Elon Musk doesn't really have many tabs placed upon him. Um, he's doing really good. He's, I think he's one of that rare breed that has the visionary and the integrator locked into one where he can actually think about a concept, but then actually get it through to product. Um, but even with a lot of his estimates, I mean, you know, he's, he's going to build androids in the next year. Good luck with that one. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but probably he's going to have Androids coming out in the next three to five years that are going to be able to do amazing things um, inside of our world. And those are the people, again, that you just really need to be able to figure out, are you that person? Are you the person that needs to work for them? Or are you the person that needs to harness that person? Yeah, I think Elon is, is, is a good example of what we're talking about, right? But even with Elon, though, Elon is not who he is right now if he wasn't who he was 10, 15, 20 years before. So my next question is obviously, like your journey, the perception of you being overnight success is a reality to someone hearing from you the first time. But how long have you been on that path? Man, I mean, just Time Doctors, 12 years old, uh, overnight success. I know... Um, someone else who's been a mentor of mine for years is uh, Tobias Lipke, who lives in the same city as me. And he's the founder of a company called Shopify, which is a massive e-commerce company, $200 billion valuation. And everyone thinks about Shopify being an overnight success. Yeah, it was a very quick 25-year overnight success, <laughs> right? Like these things take time. Uh, and the other th interesting phenomenon actually is the companies that just pop out of nowhere they actually degrade as quickly as they expand. Mm -hmm. um, so you, it, it's somewhat counterintuitive. But if I had a business, if I owned a business, and you could say, 
all right, I'm going to have business one that grows 100% on year one and then probably goes down 50% year two? Or do I want a business that goes up 20% for 10 years every single year? I mean, I'm going to choose the slower growing one because the net result is going to be much more profitable. You're going to be able to pull profits out of the business. You'll be able to raise money if you want to. Whereas those like pump and dump companies that are really popping up now, particularly in the side of the tech world, not really the ones that I would uh, attach my particular dollars to. Hmm. So, I mean, that's definitely an interesting segue to talk my next question, right? So hearing you speak about the terminology and hearing you speak about all the timeframes that, that we're going back and forth about, my next question is more so in regards to like your upbringing. Like obviously you're a hell of an entrepreneur and you've been on this journey for a period of time, but do any of your parents have this entrepreneurial hustle? Are you getting this from like an aunt or an uncle? Like, where are you getting this insight from? Yeah, definitely from my father. Um, he was an entrepreneur, but a failed one. So he was one of those people actually that had the entrepreneurial spirit, tried a couple things. It didn't end up working out. And uh, he ended up getting a job um, in the federal government as an example. Actually, well, so I'll share you one story, which I think is somewhat heartbreaking for him, um, but happy that it happened because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. My my father ended up doing uh, deep fried bananas. So you would basically get a banana, you'd put it in um, some, you, you deep fry it and then you serve it, right? And had this little cart and he, he, he invested, you know, a couple thousand dollars or something like that in this business. And he was hustling um, these deep fried bananas. And then he had a business associate that came to him and said, listen, I want to be able to start this business and I need this equipment to be able to start the business. Would you like to come in with me as a business partner or should I just buy you out? Right. So buy out the equipment. And he said, oh, you know, this isn't really working out right now. Yeah, definitely buy me out. And, you know, he, he pleaded with the, with this, with my father to be able to, um, to, to go in on business with him. And that turned into a business where um, it's probably not that popular in the United States, but the company is called Beaver Tails. Hmm. So it's a deep fried piece of batter that um, people eat and you put like uh, sugar on it, you put on um, Reese's Pieces, chocolate, that kind of thing, and turned into 560 locations um, throughout North America, right? And it's just like... Damn. The the road less traveled, right? <laughs> the left versus the right. But I think you should never regret your decisions. Mm. Uh, I think once you make them, you know, they're done. And yes, that was the wrong decision, but hopefully it will inform you on how to be able to make better decisions in the future. But he probably walked away from billions and billions of dollars worth of equity um, by, you know, selling his deep fryer as opposed to partnering with somebody. So, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good, insightful thing to say, okay, like when opportunity knocks, right, most people won't see it as opportunity. They'll just sell out or move on, cash out, and not think about the long-term opportunity. So, would you, if you can go back in time, right, is there anything that you can kind of think of in your journey to success that may be something that you missed an opportunity? Maybe there was a mistake made that you can change. What would that, What I mean, when would you go back and what would you change? Oh, yeah. I mean... Do we have 10 hours for this podcast? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you one. Um, I remember we ended up, I almost invested in the first ever Bitcoin ATM system. So um, a bunch of partners of uh, Angel Group that I was part of, we wheeled in this Bitcoin ATM um, to be able to show everyone as a demo, right? And I thought, oh, okay, you know what? I'll put 50 bucks in and I got five Bitcoins back. It's $10 a Bitcoin. My buddy, um, he put like five grand in and got a thousand Bitcoins out. Now, that was a big win for him, um, but it was still a big win for me. I actually still have the majority of those Bitcoins. I keep them in a safety deposit box uh, and, you know, I've basically taken them into um into dry storage, cold storage. I put them in that safety deposit box and they're just there uh, for probably at least another decade because I think crypto is really going to take off. But that's just one example of probably, you know, 20 or 30 other 
issues that I might have. But if you if you delve on those, if those if you keep coming back to those, then you're not actually going to pay attention to the opportunities that are right in front of your face. Mm. And you need to be able to be mindful of that. Don't you know? Think of the world is half full, not half empty, and you're actually going to have a much better context, and you're going to be a lot less stressed in your life if you go after the wins. I mean, for me. Um, remote work has been probably the best decision that I could have possibly made over the last decade, right? It has made me incredibly rich. Um, the business is doing incredible. All the different businesses that I have connected to remote work are doing incredibly well. And it was just one of those moments where remote was going well. I knew that the trend line was going this direction. And then COVID just provided the accelerator that just moved us from, you know, 40% year over year growth to 400% year over year growth. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, with, with all those successes that, that you just, you know, itemized out and listed, right? And I mean, obviously, it's more so than anything else that you have control over your time. I would think then that gives you an opportunity to potentially create a family or at least be more involved with your family. So how do you currently mm -hmm. juggle your, your family life with your work life? You know, that's been an interesting challenge because I have a 20-month-old now. And um, I actually think that entrepreneurship, I mean, that was my that was effectively my firstborn. And now I've got this child that has kicked entrepreneurship to my second top priority. And I ended up pushing up against that for a little while, but then realized, you know, this is something that, um, I mean, until you have children, I don't think you can really kind of recognize this, but it's, it's this genetic reorganization of your mind. Like it's just, it's almost innate um, the way that, I, where I want to invest my time is much more with my daughter than it is continuing to build the business. And particularly, actually, I think it would have been different had I still been struggling at the business. I probably would have put a lot more time and energy into the business than into my daughter. But at this point, I mean, I have people that delegate, that I can delegate to, that can do absolutely everything in the business much better than me. Which, by the way, that's the next big lesson is to move from entrepreneurship to executive so if you can make the transition from entrepreneur to executive, which most people can't, um, I do an okay job at it. My business partner does a much better job at it than me. Making that transition can allow you to be able to embrace other interests like parenting, as an example, um, that I've been really pursuing over the last couple of years and, and I love, um, but I still obviously also love entrepreneurship because I love the mission that we're on and what we're trying to create as a company. But, you know, if I had to choose between my daughter and the business, um, the business is, uh, is a far second. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, just go into like your, your routines. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, based upon what you said, you like to spend a lot of time with your daughter. So what does your morning routines, your morning habits look like? I'll tell you the real one. Um, the morning <laughs> I wake up at about, yeah. I mean, instead of, giving you the BS version that's uh, that, that'll that make me sound like I'm much better than I am. I wake up in the morning. The first thing that I check is all of my dashboards. Mm -hmm. um, how much money did we make? How much money did we lose? Are there any big explosions that I need to be able to deal with? That's about, you know, 7.30 in the morning. Um, then I grind through a couple emails. I break down my my day. So I usually do my to-do list the day before, and then I transfer my to-do list into my calendar. So my to-do list is my calendar. And I, it's a really great way to be able to identify, yeah, I have six priorities, but do I actually have time to do all those six priorities? Maybe I only have enough time to do three. And really time blocking that out is, is an important task, at least for me. Um, by that point, you know, my daughter's up uh, and ready to go to daycare. So we send her off to daycare and I grind through till about 6 p.m. Uh, after that, I go pick her up, go back here for two to three more hours. And um, then I usually unwind for like one to two hours um, with my wife, just kind of watching Netflix. Uh, and inside of that, too, I spend at least one hour a day reading and trying to educate myself in some context, whether that's like an audio book or a podcast or whatever it might be, uh, usually connected to exercise to really kind of just deconnect from the day, but also do something that's useful. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, I think 
you, you alluded to like my next question. I think earlier on you had mentioned a couple different books. So this this question is going to be a three part question. So the first part of the question is like, obviously you have one hell of a journey and success story. What books helped you on that journey to get to where you are currently? So first book I would suggest anyone start with is a zero to one by Peter Thiel. Mm. Fantastic book in understanding the philosophical underpinnings of how to not just build a business, but build a monopoly. Uh, his concept, I think, is beautiful, which is any business that wants to exist for an extended amount of time must at its core be a monopoly. And you think that monopoly is negative, um, but it's not. He explains to you exactly how that works. So that's another really big one. Uh, big one. I would probably also say um, the next one actually would be remote. Uh, which is the book that I've got right up here by Basecamp. So this is a really good introduction to how to work and build a business remotely. I have been um, looking at this book probably for the last couple of years, and it's going to give you that base underpinning. And then I would probably say the next one would be my book, uh, Running Remote, even though you didn't probably didn't expect that one, but my book uh, is going to be the sequel to something like Remote, which is how do you build an organization without actually operating inside of it, uh, which I think is important. And then an honorable mention actually is, um, uh, it's uh, a book on process documentation and it's at the very tip of my tongue right now. I've read it about four or five times. Um, man, I can't remember what it is. I'll tell you in the show notes. It's it's a very um, it's a book about process documentation, and I think anyone that's really focused on scaling a business, you need to have process documentation at the core. The book's called Emeth. Uh, there we go. I got it. So Emeth is really going to teach you how to build processes and systems inside of your business so that you're no longer working in the business, but you're working on it. Wow. Wow. So the second part of this question, I mean, you talked about being able to listen to podcasts and listen to audiobooks while you're, you know, you're trying to do some working out. So what audiobooks are you listening to currently? Oh, well, I think actually I just got through a really good one, which was um, Hardcore History. Uh, which has nothing to do with business whatsoever, but a really great way to kind of like disconnect my mind and inside of, it's actually a long form podcast. So each episode is about four to five hours long. So it's effectively like an audiobook. Uh, I just listened to the explosion in the East, which goes into the psychological mindset of the Japanese government and the Japanese cultural edict and why they were so effective in taking their entire population and kind of reorganizing them on a war footing um, during the Second World War. And I think that podcast was like eight episodes, six hours an episode. Wow. So it was a really, really long podcast, uh, but highly recommend. Um, very, very good to kind of get into the deep insights of, of people. Another one is um, The Basics of Management. And that's another podcast that I've been listening to on a pretty regular basis, teaches you how to do one-on-ones, teaches you how to be able to delegate um, all of those basics. And they've kind of structured it in a way where the podcast isn't really an interview mm -hmm. podcast. It's more a instructional training. So it's effectively an MBA course on management, um, but over about 30 to 40 hours. And I've listened to that one two or three times. It's really good. Nice, nice. I think to, to your point earlier, you were saying that, you know, history is not really related to business. But I think if you look at like everyone that has historically done something that they could look back and say, well, how did it start? It was based upon somebody else's history. It was looking at somebody else as a mentor and utilizing that. And you're talking about the Japanese culture. I mean, the rising sun is, is, a, is a hell of a culture, being that they're just an island, but they were still, till this day, a powerhouse globally, right? So <laughs> my next question, based upon that, I mean, I think you alluded to some of your books. So talking about the rising sun, let's talk about like running remote, your new book. Sure. So uh, again, inside of this book, mm. I studied... 12 billion dollar plus remote first companies that were remote before the pandemic. And what I wanted to figure out was what was the one thing that they were doing differently than almost all of the pandemic panickers that have currently, you know, popped up in the last two and a half years. What, what differences do they have? 
And it boils down to this, which is a term that I'm calling asynchronous management, the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them. I think Vaishali was the initial person that ended up connecting us for this call who runs PR for me. She's worked for six years uh, for me. We work every single day together and we have met in person or on video five times during that six year period. But we work every single day through Slack and through email and through our project management systems. And it's effectively removing the manager as a direct manager, but it's delegating the platforms that we use, the project management systems, the documentation systems as the manager. And then the, the direct managers are actually more leaders inside of those organizations. Those are the people that get people excited and hopefully bind people together to be successful in the mission that you have as a company. And I can't tell you, you know, when I discovered this, it really felt like I had like a life preserver and everyone else was in the water because <laughs> everyone else has now gone from working in an office to working from home. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually remote work. Uh, remote work is where you can work wherever you want, whenever you want, an office, your house, a coffee shop, a co-working space. You can work from a beach. I don't suggest the beach, by the way. You get a lot of sand in your laptop and uh, ends up busting up your, your equipment pretty quick. But outside of that, I mean, to me, this is really the future of work. Uh, and the methodology in order to be able to implement re remote work is undoubtedly asynchronous. Nice, nice. So, I mean, I'm just listening to you. I mean, you sound so much like, like Tim Ferriss as far as like the four-hour work week. It's like the similarities and the compounding of the systems are, are very similar. And I think that what you're doing adds on another level on top because, I mean, obviously you have the systematic intellect, right? Then you also you have the actual physical systems and then now you also have the software. So, again, you're bringing a, a complete package to the table. So my next question is about this package that you're building and you're developing, right? Where do you see what you're doing right now, maybe 10, 20 years down the road? So, number one, I think probably half the S&P 500 is going to be remote. Mm -hmm. uh, and more specifically, I think actually the majority of remote companies will be asynchronous. And in-person companies, offices can actually use asynchronous work as well, right? So this entire concept of everyone getting into a boardroom and, you know, taking 15 minutes to get up there, you have a you have a coffee break or whatever, and you sit in this room for 90 minutes of which you maybe only participate for five minutes. It's a stupid model. Um, it doesn't actually get work done. The other kind of philosophical architecture that I'm inspired by is a book by my friend Cal Newport called Deep Work. Yes, and that book is effectively telling every single individual inside of an organization Get everything in front of you in order to be able to solve difficult problems. So you have no barriers to solving those difficult issues. And unfortunately, the vast majority of barriers inside of organizations are their managers. Hmm. So this is the thing that, you know, you think to yourself, oh, you're, you're a manager and you're managing all of these people inside of asynchronous organizations uh, that I studied. The managerial level is about 50% thinner than their on-premise counterparts. Yeah. So there are more people doing work in asynchronous organizations than there are people managing people doing work in asynchronous organizations, which goes back to your original question, which is, well, why are some people apprehensive about going back to the office? Because yeah. a lot of them know they're redundant inside of those organizations at this point. There's a better way to do work. It provides more autonomy and clarity if you just delegate these responsibilities to the platform as opposed to actually doing it manually. Because I've been in some of these corporate jobs and you know it's like, I tell you my metrics, you tell your manager my metrics, and then that manager tells the boss my metrics. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we just create a system where everyone's data can actually be put up automatically um, and ideally not even put up manually on a digital platform, but completely automated. So you don't actually even need to put any of this data in there. And then everyone can have absolute clarity and not just give it to the CEO, give it to everyone in the side of the company. So everyone has access to that data. And that's to me, the future of where we're going in terms of work. I think if we have that form of radical transparency inside of the organization, then we're gonna be able to open ourselves up to opportunities and people are really gonna focus on doing much better work.
Nice, nice. I think you brought up Cal Newport, and, and deep work is, I would say, it's a tool. Like, and once you understand what that book is personifying about blocking off a particular period of time and getting your synergy and getting into the rhythm, you get way more work done a lot faster. So my next question, based upon that principle, is tools, right? What tools do you currently use to manage and ma- like to maintain and manage what you're doing on a day-to-day basis? So I'll just give you a couple examples. Uh, Asana is one of the tools that we use for the vast majority of our meetings. So we have something called silent meetings. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow I'm actually running my one singular big silent meeting with eight other executives. And we put down all of the issues that we have and we debate those issues asynchronously. So we just add comments to the ticket, to the Asana ticket. And if we come to a conclusion on that issue, we take the conclusion, we post it at the top of the ticket, and then we clear the ticket. And if we have less than three issues for a meeting, we don't have the meeting. Um, we probably meet about once a month, uh, and we're supposed to meet weekly. So that just shows you how many of those issues are actually completely redundant, and they're not important towards the core of the business. And you could actually deal with them asynchronously when you can choose to interact with that information. But the issues that are left also, ironically, have nothing to do with the operations of the business or kind of like the nuts and bolts of the business. It almost entirely has to do with EQ issues. Like this person doesn't like this other person. This person thinks that, you know, they're stepping in on this other person's turf. And to really get down to that core is important to be, you know, to to remove all of those, the BS kind of layers of the onion and get down to the nucleus of what we're talking about is sometimes very, very difficult and uncomfortable um, for a lot of people that are inside of these types of organizations. But you absolutely need to do it in order to actually do your best work, unfortunately. And a lot of people don't do that. They kind of just bite around the edges of the problem without actually dealing with the big, huge elephant that's in the room. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm just I'm just recapping what you said, and, and it's, it's phenomenal insight, right? So, um, leading into my next question, like I want to kind of dive into like your 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 user case avatars, and obviously you work with Keller Williams, you work with Ericsson, you work with Better Business Bureau, you work with Firehouse Sub, just to kind of name some of the brands that you guys have actually helped over the years. So, who is your ideal avatar? Are you more so like on the level of multi-million dollar avatars, or are you doing more mom and pops or a hybrid of both? We actually have three ICPs. Uh, so we have BPO Bobby, uh, we have Agency Adam, and then we have uh, Tim Ferriss. So we have three of those. Uh, so BPO Bobby are business process outsourcing companies. And those are people that if you've ever called MasterCard or if you've called the customer support line at Firehouse Subs, as an example, um, it's not the company that's actually picking up the phone. It's a company that's been subcontracted to pick up the phone on that company's behalf. Those are what are called business process outsourcing companies. They actually are the top employer on planet Earth. Um, the most hired, the, the most popular job on planet Earth is run through a BPO, uh, which is customer service agents. So that's the first demographic that we serve. The second demographic is agency Adam. So if you think about an SEO agency, a marketing agency, a engineering agency, they really need to be able to account for where time is going. So a lot of agency owners will say, hey, I have 20 clients and I'm cash positive. That's great. But did you actually figure out if every single one of your clients are positive? Because if you use something like Time Doctor, you can actually analyze and figure out, well, three of our clients are not profitable. They're paying us, but we're actually losing money to work with them. And we need to either fire them as a customer, or we need to raise their prices in order for us to be able to make basically positive ROI, uh, return on ad spend effectively. And then the third category is Tim Ferriss, the people that are really excited about remote work and trying to be able to build out their own remote businesses. And they're just starting on their journey. And those are people that you know are hiring two to three to four seats um, inside of their organization that needs a tool like Time Doctor. And we're happy to be able to serve them as well. They actually are the majority of our customers, but they account for less than 10% of our revenue. Sounds like like the whole top one percent kind of it, it works across the board, right? I mean, like we just said earlier about the seventy five percent of business owners being remote is is majority of the workforce as far as, far as the higher echelon goes. So with that, Absolutely. let's say you could you can give a word of insight, right? Let's say you're talking to 
tier one, right? And you're, you're communicating with tier one to say, okay, you could be tier one, but you could easily become tier two, or you could easily become Tim Ferriss down the road. What words of insight would you give to them to help them motivate them to continue on their journey? Well, if I think about someone that's just starting off, um, the first thing is remote work is not a nice to have. It's table stakes now. And not only that, there's an opportunity inside of this reshuffling of the deck, which is very exciting. So work has completely changed. I love to steal uh, Mark Andreessen's words from this, who is the partner at Andreessen and Horowitz, basically the most powerful VC firm on the planet. He said, remote work is going to be more powerful than the internet itself in terms of the change that it's going to impact on the world. So you've got a, everyone right now is on a horse and buggy and you're going to learn how to build a Model T. And this is going to be an incredibly exciting time for you. If you can overtake that, if you can take on that challenge and you can simply move faster, if you can implement deep work as an example at scale, you will be unbeatable in comparison to all the horse and buggies. You know, I don't know, well, neither of us were alive at that point, but when you think about back in 1915, when the first Model T rolled off the production line, I'm sure a lot of people said, oh, that'll never replace my, you know, my horse. But 20 years later, all the horses were gone and Model Ts were running everything. And I think we're at that current moment right now. And you need to be mindful about that opportunity that's in front of you because it could completely transform the way that you do work. And that's by far the most important thing inside a business is the work that's being done. Mm -hmm. So you need to be mindful of that. Take these lessons into consideration and really try to run a remote business, not because you necessarily have to, but because it's actually going to be a much more successful business model for you long-term. Wow. So, I mean, with, with that, how does someone get in contact with the remote boss? Boy, um, that's actually quite difficult because <laughs> I don't want people to contact me that often uh, because I have my work that I need to do. But if you want to check out the book, go to runningremote.com. Uh, we also run a conference as well if you're interested in going to that. If you're interested in Time Doctor, go to timedoctor.com. And I probably would say the best place to find me is I'm at Liam Remote on most of the social media platforms, but the best one is youtube.com slash running remote. We put all of our talks up there for free. And if you want to contact me there, just put it down in the comments and I shall appear. Uh, all other forms of social media I have managed by other people, not because I don't necessarily like social media, but because I know for me, I need to apply my time to very specific things. And uh, social media can end up being a major distraction for me. Nice, nice. So going into the bonus round, I got a couple of bonus questions for you. And my first Let's one go. being that you've accomplished so much in, in your lifespan, right? Like what is your most significant achievement to date outside of like your family or your child? Man, I was just going to say my daughter. I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, corking that one quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, man, this is going to sound pretty egotistical. Uh, I'm going to, I mean, in the context of the Boss Uncaged podcast. It was when I got my first uh, first seven-figure check just for myself. Hmm. So like the first time that I saw a million bucks get deposited into my own bank account, um, that was a pretty exciting moment. I was like, oh crap, guys. Like, are you serious? Like, I'm a cash millionaire. This is insane. And it's going to happen to everyone. If you continue to work on it, it's going to happen to everyone. You just got time and pressure, right? Makes it happen. Um, but yeah, that was an incredibly, that was just a huge event for me. Um, I almost wanted to print it, but I thought that that was too egotistical. I think entrepreneurs, like if I told a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that they yeah. would, they would love that. But, yeah. you know, telling regular people, I think they kind of think that you're, I don't know, uh, that that's not a really appropriate thing to say. But for me, man, I had just been working about 20 years on trying to get to that moment. Yeah. Shit, I would, you know, listen to the way you're explaining it and it being such a, a climactic moment for you, I would have made a damn t-shirt. <laughs> <With the> <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny enough, I just got off the phone with my buddy Mariano, who runs a company called Mural, mm. which ended up turning into a massive, massive company, like multi-billion dollar valuation. And I remember about five years ago, uh, we were in Bali together 
and he got his Series A financing. He secured Series A financing, fourteen million bucks. And it's, it's all public now. And I remember him showing me his phone to show the fourteen million dollar deposit in his bank account, and that was just like a crazy moment where someone, a group of people, believe in this guy enough to put fourteen million bucks in his bank account. I mean. That's just crazy when you think about that yeah. and you think about the amount of time and energy invested to be able to get to that singular moment. I said, dude, you should take a photo. We should do a video. Like, you know, you should just crystallize this moment as much as humanly possible because you never, and now he's a, you know, the company's worth billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But I think that that $14 million series A is probably more important than the billions of dollars of valuation that he currently has right now. Wow. Wow. Definitely inspirational for any listener that's listening right now to kind of like, you know, you can be at point A, but literally in a short period of time by staying consistent and working towards your goal, then you can execute exactly what Liam is talking about. Um, going into another bonus question for you, and I think for you it's going to be very interesting, right? Um, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Oof. Uh, probably Newton. No. Da Vinci, Da Vinci, um, the ultimate, I mean, yeah. we didn't really have entrepreneurs back in the day. Um, but if you had to think of someone that was just so multifaceted in his interests and so incredibly intelligent, Da Vinci, sit down with that guy for 24 hours. You know, I'd love to be able to come from the future and tell him about all the crazy stuff that we had done just to kind of blow his mind and see how he would react to those types of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Oh, you know what? Can I go back again? <laughs> I got <laughs> someone else. Uh, Augustus. Uh, wow. So that was the emperor right after um, Caesar, mm -hmm. arguably the most successful emperor of the Roman Empire. And um, he was really the guy that took Stoicism mm -hmm. to where it is now uh, through his mentors and, and through his teachers. And a man that has absolute power at that level that invests it in things that further build his civilization as opposed to building himself. Um, I think that those are really interesting people to talk to. I'd probably say today it would be Elon Musk would be the closest to that, right? Where he's like, listen, I think that we should have open and honest conversations and we should have, um, and we should make sure that communication is as open as humanly possible. I'm just going to buy Twitter. Like he could buy himself whatever, yeah. um, but he wants to spend his money on something that he at least believes, whether you agree with him or not, is empowering free speech throughout the world. And those are, those are people that I find incredibly inspiring. And I would love to be able to spend more time with them. I think this goes back, I think it was like around like 30 minutes into this podcast and you, you were saying something about like history, history, and I'm just listening to you and the people like you're talking about, essentially, they were all entrepreneurs in their own right, right? I mean, and the things Absolutely. like... I think the, in today's world, like the echelon of who, who we're communicating with, like Elon, are essentially following in their footsteps, hands down, period. Absolutely. I think that when you think about Elon Musk, it's probably a hybrid of uh, Da Vinci mixed in with probably a little bit of Augustus actually at this point now where he's just he's almost getting in I mean when you think about the acquisition of Twitter you think about the conversations that everyone is having on planet earth that is the town square right for the world uh and I personally am actually quite excited to be able to see what he'll do if they will accept his offer um to be able to get it back to where I think it was about five years ago well, I think with Elon, it's, it's, it's some transparency that we're not used to. Like usually those type of conversations happen behind closed doors, especially in, in the valuation of the billions of dollars he's planning on paying for it. People don't hear about that because that's going to affect stock prices. Right. So for him to just to come out and say, hey, I'm going to buy it. And here's my offer price. It's kind of like for the, the regular average person to even know these numbers is a phenomenal thing in today's world. Yes. And I think that that's another thing that's really great about him is he's open and honest uh, with everyone. And I think that there's no real closed doors for him yeah. as an individual. And I think that that's actually, I mean, I talked about rad radical transparency inside of our own organization. 
Um, when you join our company, you know all of our secrets. You know our P&L. You know, you, the only thing you don't know is how much people are paid. Uh, we keep that information to ourselves. But everything else we give to the employees so that they have the same informational advantage as the CEO. And we just think it's actually right. It reinforces people's mission um, of the company and gets them excited about where they want to go inside of the organization and keeps them down to that, man, okay, well, I'm working at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm working at three o'clock in the morning because I really want to solve this mission and these people are being totally upfront with me as opposed to, um, you know, I have no idea what's going on inside of this organization and I'm just trying to collect a check. You don't want those people in your company. Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. So going into closing, I mean, traditionally, I always give the opportunity to whoever I'm interviewing to become the host of Boston Cage podcast. The show is yours. The microphone is yours. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? You know, I would love to know where you get all your merch from because this is by far the best merch background I have ever seen. Uh, and if you're listening to me, it's really unfortunate or listening to us, it's really unfortunate. The merch, man, it's it's amazing. And that's uh, that's probably the top question that I have off the top of my head. I think it goes back to me being uh, a graffiti artist in Brooklyn. And, and it's like the more and more I get into marketing is the more and more I'm realizing that I was born for it back in the 90s. And about graffiti is always about tagging. It's always about getting up. How many times could you put a sticker up? Where's the biggest bubble that you can put up? So really and truly, that's what I'm starting to do with my merch. It's like I'm not even marketing or promoting my merch. I'm just getting up. That's the way I look at it. I'm just sticking a tattoo here. I'm sticking a sticker here. Right. And I'm doing some graffiti here, left and right. So. Where do you think the future of design is going? Um, that's something wow. that, and maybe that's a really open-ended question and I should get a little bit more specific about it. Yeah. When I see the future of, um, of branding, and I actually think personal branding, I, I think probably within the next five years, almost everyone on social media should have their own personal brand. Meaning like, it's, you know, it's something that's representative of themselves. And I don't know whether or not that's, again, a little too egotistical, but just something that I can give you to be able to say, this is the core of who I am. Um, and you can understand it completely from top to bottom, even though like inside of um, my companies, we have a really important uh, focus on mission statement. So I think I said this at the beginning of the podcast, our company's mission is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. That's what we've been doing for the past 11 years. And we focus on remote work advocacy, generousness, determination, adaptability, and passion inside of everything that we're doing. And I can give you like a paragraph breakdown of all of those things. When we give people, when they join the company, we literally give them that poster and we get them to like learn it and breathe it. And I'm even thinking about doing that for myself. Um, so that people can very clearly identify who I am as a person. And I think the best way to be able to do that inside of, is inside of like a personal brand document. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's one of those things that I've been throwing around on the top of my head. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, and I think we've seen it done repeatedly so many different times in history. And I think the landmark for our generation would be Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs himself was a brand. He was an asshole, but he was a brand nonetheless. Everything he touched potentially rotten and then turned back to gold right and then he had apple as a brand and then he had the iphone or the imac all have their own individual brand identity as well so if you're looking at brand continuity to what you're saying is there's three aspects to every brand you're going to have to either have a product or service and that needs to be a brand needs to be able to tell a story you as the individual need to tell your own individual story that overlaps with that product or service and then whatever that other third item could be in the case of apple it was the iphone once the iphone came out like that brand exploded overnight because not everyone and their mom was telling the story of holding the, this device for the first time ever. Mm, yeah, I, I remember there was a talk with the Simon Sinek about Apple and getting to their why, which is um, Apple thinks differently. That's their concept, right? right? So that's the core of their brand. They think differently. They don't think like other people. They don't think like the suit and tie people. They think differently. And that's why they don't actually sell computers. And that's why they could sell a phone or they could sell a car in the future or they could sell a TV screen. It's because their brand encapsulates a much bigger concept than just, well, we sell computers. Um, that's like the end of where they started. Where they started is we think differently as a company and we want to actually disrupt people 
that think the same way as everyone else. And I love that concept and I feel it feeds through it. Like that is the value of that type of company. I'm sitting in front of a whole bunch of Apple products right now as an example. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that spend $5,000 on a computer when I can spend $1,000 for the same computer and get the same functionality out of it. But it's really going back to that core tenant of, you know, I want to be associated with that type of a movement. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And I've just been, um, I've been throwing around the concept of personal branding and saying, should that actually be as important as the time and energy that we put into our company branding and our company mission? Because, um, we put a lot of time into it to be able to attract other people inside of our organization. And I was thinking it could actually explain a lot to my friends and family. If I was like, Hey, you know what, this is exactly who I'm about here. It is. Um, so that you can take that and you know, me good and bad. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, think about it. I mean, we brought up a couple of different big names on the, on the show. Right. And Tim Ferriss is, is a good example of what we're talking about. Like Tim Ferriss is like the, the ambience of branding, Right. Like what, if you ask the average person, like who is Tim Ferriss? What is his product? They're going to be like, mm, I think I heard his name, but they don't know what he sells or he markets or, or whatever versus we're talking about Steve Jobs. We all know that he's Apple. And I think to your point, mm -hmm. Tim could jump into any market sector and do anything that he wants to do because he is the brand. It's, it's the Tim Ferriss right. show. Again, he self-branded everything based upon him. So you could buy any one of his companies and rebrand it, and he, he'll still be who he is, and you're not going to be able to buy him as a name, kind of like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan owns Joe Rogan, right? He is a right. personal brand that's a multi-million dollar brand at this point in time, and you can't – you could buy – Joe, but Joe's going to come with the show. You're not going to be able to take Joe away from the show and still be successful without Joe attached to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's a good way to think about it. I I've been um, throwing this around in my head for a very long time, which is you know something like Time Doctor I can sell, but something like Leah Martin I can't sell, mm -hmm. and that's probably a good and a bad thing um, because you know it's really nice to sell a business and walk away with a fat check. Um, you can't really do that with a personal brand. But with that said, I think when I think about personal branding, I'm thinking about just identifying myself very clearly for other people so that people know what they can get. Like I don't talk to people on social media uh, as an example, <laughs> right? That's a perfect example of, you know, it's just like, listen, I, I got to put my time into something else. Um, I've got a clear mission. And social media is not part of that mission. So, you know, that's something that I think is um is is a is a critical thing that I'm trying to deal with right now. But thanks for alluding, at least opening it up a little bit more for me, because now I've got a clearer idea. I think I'm gonna go write a brand document right after I jump off this call. Well, I see it in your eyes. I see to see that passion burning, man. And I love to see that with entrepreneurs. I mean, even with your level of success, you're still hungry, you're still motivated to do whatever the next thing is in association to what you're doing right now. So I mean, with that, I definitely was a pleasure having you on the show. I think you gave hell of insight, hell of energy to where the, the listener, if you're not motivated to do something after listening to this particular episode, then your heart probably needs to be, you know, checked just a little bit because obviously this guy is delivering hell of value i appreciate you thanks for being on the show today thanks for having me sa grant over and out thanks for tuning in to another episode of boss on cage i hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an uncaged trailblazer don't forget to subscribe rate review and share the podcast if this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions reach out and let me know Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.